cliffcentral.com. Let's talk African analysis this morning with JJ Cornish, who joins us. It's, of course, brought to you by the Johannesburg Business School, and they're helping us to give you all the information about what's happening around the African continent. Here he is, JJ Cornish. Good morning, sir. Bonjour to you. The bungee jumping, did they have a sign there saying bungee jumping free for merchant bankers and politicians? No strings attached. No. Unfortunately <laughs> not, JJ. Sure. Must have I, was down, <laughs> I was down in that part of the world. There was bungee jumping. I went up to the guy in charge and said, Who feel corset om to spring? And he said, Nay, cos fokol, ma she tobele is it faith on it rond. I love it. So, JJ, first of all, how are you? And uh, have have you been bungee jumping lately? <laughs> never. <laughs> no, I've this? never bungee jumped or parachuted or done any of those things. Uh, and I use my cover as a responsible father for not doing that. If I hadn't done it okay. before I had children, I thought maybe not a good idea now. Yeah. No, go on. No, no, I'm, I'm busy writing a book on Willilian Schlapo, you know, our ambassador to the African Union, ambassador to uh, uh, Washington, and his wife, who's a doctor, uh, she, she's bungee jumped, you know. And I asked him, how could you let your wife bungee jump? I mean, and he said, well, you know, he looked at me like, uh, who, who would, some people have to do these things. And I'm looking at one of them right now. Have to do these things. <laughs> right. All right. So, JJ, uh, Sudan has kind of dominated the news lately um, on the continent. Well, certainly until we got into a spat with the United States ambassador over giving Russia arms. But we'll talk about that just now. Let's start off with Sudan. Um, they cannot pay for the humanitarian crisis that has been caused by refugees fleeing the fighting. It's going on there, despite these Jeddah talks that you did tell us about that are designed to secure humanitarian conditions. Uh, the army has frozen the funds of paramilitaries. Now, just again, for people who don't know what the hell's going on, because we can't be expected to keep up to date with all of this. Uh, just remind us very briefly of, of the origin of this problem and then tell us how, how dire the situation really is from a humanitarian point of view in Sudan right now. Well, we have uh, the army under al-Buran. And the army, of course, has now taken power. So they're running the country. Uh, but uh, al-Bashir, the uh, former president, uh, who is wanted by the International Criminal Court for Crimes Against Humanity, the Janjaweed, the wild horsemen, crazy horsemen, they in Darfur began uh, to d- suppress the people there. And again, Nubian people, not Arab people. And uh, from them began the rapid support forces uh, under uh, Khamenei, the the, uh, head of that. And uh, Omar al-Bashir rather liked that. And these guys now grew into a force of their own. And that's the army and the paramilitaries who are now battling for control of, effectively, of Sudan. And their battle has gone into the second month. Uh, the talks in Jeddah, hosted by Saudi Arabia and the United States, have not produced the humanitarian corridors they wanted. And the bombardment of Khartoum and the big cities around it, Bari and Omdurman, which are the two twin cities of uh, Khartoum, continues. Now, the fact is 
Sudan is in a rough neighborhood, seven neighbors. And when I list them, you'll see, you wouldn't want to have to rely on any of them. Libya, Central African Republic, South Sudan, um, Egypt, uh, uh, Eritrea, Ethiopia. You wouldn't want to rely. And apparently, according to the United Nations, 810,000, nearly a million people are going to flee that country. Uh, Now, they... Uh, and uh, more than 100,000 have already done that. And these seven countries, but particularly uh, Egypt, Chad, South Sudan, have been taking the brunt of them, and they simply cannot afford to pay for these people. They can't afford the service. Apparently, they've got 15% of the needs of these people that they can supply. Now, what would happen is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and that's the building in Pretoria where I don't think you did camp outside it wanting to go to Canada, did you? No, no. Most, people in, <laughs> most people in Pretoria did. But anyway, uh, and they were moved very gently by the police. But the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which does ex- excellent work, they say they've gone to the international community saying, help us. We need help. And this time... People have turned something of a deaf ear to this and said no. And there's been the the, the help that they're getting is much less than they would normally have expected. So they're battling like mad, uh, these countries, to to supply the needs. You you know, the, the Western powers all say we don't want these refugees coming and they put up walls as Hungary does and they and they pay off Libya as uh, the other countries have done. But the fact is, when you get refugees in Africa, the greatest majority of those, overwhelming majority of them, simply move to the next country and can hardly afford them. Uganda, for example, takes in a hell of a lot of refugees. Uh, All these countries take in enormous amounts, more than they can afford. Uganda, incidentally, talking about the army, they also have a special force that protects Yaweri Museveni and special uh, installations. And that force is not set in law like the uh, Janjaweed or the RSF in uh, Sudan. So a danger of a a return of that kind of fighting in Uganda exists. And that's something we're going to have to watch very carefully. Well, JJ, I mean, unfortunately, where you have terrible governments and you have huge amounts of violence and destruction and 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 kind of the, the chaos that we see so often on this continent <clears throat> people just want to get out eventually they go i'm sorry i can't handle this anymore i'm going to try and take my family to to a place where they will be safe um the the, the question i always have is when you see these these immigrants arriving in you know syria and greece and italy in spain it's always men of working age, um, you know, refugees, almost you would think would be mostly women and children. Is that the case in Sudan too? Or are, are the women and children left behind because they really cannot fend for themselves and the men are going out to seek opportunity? How does it work? Well, you know, in some cases, for example, the Syrians who are sending more refugees than others, uh, they send young men. They send young men to establish themselves and to send money back to the families. I was in Turkey where, you, you know, the, they were camping on the beachfront. And, I mean, most of them were young. When I say young men, some were boys, 14, 15 years old. Where are your parents? Right. Back home, they tell me. Uh, but they have to get into Europe and then try and work it from there. Uh, and, 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 you know, they risk their lives crossing the sea. And as we'll say in the next story, they risk their lives crossing the Sahara Desert uh, 
and they don't get treated well at all. So, you know, but uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely the saddest story of the continent that people are prepared to risk their lives to get out of it because they just can't see a life for themselves. The Tunisians, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful country, but they are dying in droves trying to cross from Tunisia, which is the closest country to Europe, African country to Europe, across that sea uh, to Italy. And, uh, I mean, you know, I've spoken to them again. Why are you doing this? I mean, look at the country you have. Why can't you try and build something for yourself here? And they said, it's hopeless. There's nothing for us to do here. Uh, there's no uh, economic uh, future for us here we've got to go and they go and i've spoke to people uh and then two weeks later i learned that uh, you know some of them had actually died at sea so it's very very sad jj is it true here in the comments theodoros says um uganda has the most refugees in the world i don't know if it's the most refugees in the world but they have uh, a, a huge number an absolutely huge number and uh that many things wrong in uganda but that generosity of spirit they show putting up these refugees is quite amazing. And the fact that the international community doesn't help them enough is uh, an indictment of the international community, I think. Uh, Congo Chris says he's picked up a habit from you, JJ. When people ask me how I am, I now say I'm exceedingly well. So look, you're teaching us more than just uh, African uh, social, political, and economic change, and and all the all the goings on of the continent. You're also teaching us how to respond to people in social situations. Well, the thing to say is, any better, I'd have to tell the cops, because <laughs> no, 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 Malungu of my age deserves to be well. You know, I should be wrecked with guilt about what's happened before me, and filled with despair about what is to happen to my children. Oh, God, what, what, so when what, I feel good, maybe I should report it to the police because I've been what, doing what, something what, wrong. Well, uh, no, you should be you should be happy. And carrying uh, guilt is probably the most terrible thing that so many people do that does them no good at all and doesn't help anybody else, by the way. It just it just eats up the, the guilty, the person who's feeling guilty. So let's talk about N Niger for a second because we often talk about Nigeria, but Niger is... Uh, a, a huge country, which is just north of that. Um, and the retired teacher that's in the news at the moment, Azizu Cheho, using a beat-up old Toyota sedan is a lifesaver to thousands who've been dumped in the Sahara by Algerian authorities. Now, you mentioned the, the lengths people go to to get around and to, to get out of countries that they no longer want to be in. And this is a perfect example. Tell us about this teacher. He sounds like some kind of a, like an almost a, a hero, like an Oscar Schindler type person who's rescuing people from obviously certain death in the, in the desert. Saved many, many, many more lives than a doctor would have. He's 57 years old. He's got this 11 year old Toyota Corolla and, and, but he's organized this, this group he set up. Now, basically these people get turned away by the Algerians. They get on trucks. Then they get flung off these trucks and they have to walk to the village the nearest village sometimes 15 20 kilometers through the desert uh if they're able to contact them or or, or he he has patrols going out he takes them and and puts them up so he has saved many many lives but there are 20,000 people who found themselves in this predicament who were turned back uh from the border by the Algerians last year and so far this year 
15,000 already have been turned back. So the situation there is parlous, and uh, somebody like uh, Azizu, uh, who manages to do this work, uh, it deserves, you know, the Nobel Prize, for goodness sake. But it really is quite amazing. And, you know, the selflessness of some people is probably why I have hope and, and I'm able some days to feel happy. Because when you read stories like this, Here's this man who has nothing. He's got a very, very simple little house and he's got this organization and some people have put up some three-wheelers that they can go quickly through the desert to get uh, these people in despair and in, 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 in mortal despair because if they don't get rescued, they drop and die where, they, where, they, where the truck has left them. Horrible. But, I mean, what, a, what a, an inspiring story in the middle of all of this chaos. So let's talk about um, Algeria and Nigeria quickly because Algeria has just overtaken Nigeria as Africa's number one oil producer. And we all thought that, um, that Nigeria was in an unassailable position up there at the top of the charts when it comes to oil. We know Angola produces quite a lot, but they're quite a way behind Nigeria. Now, Algeria, I didn't realize, but they're a major, major oil producer, producing more than a million barrels a day. Yeah, I think... I might be remiss here. The fact is, it is Angola who has actually overtaken Nigeria. Oh. Algeria has okay. drawn level with Nigeria. But now this has happened before. Every time there's a real problem in uh, Nigeria and the oil production goes down, up comes Angola. At the moment, Angola is producing 1.06 million barrels of oil a day, and they are the biggest producer in the world. That is their April figures, according to OPEC. Yeah. Uh, the Nigerians have fallen to 900,000, and the Algerians are at that level too, 900,000. So we've got a good bit of oil coming, but the thing about Nigeria is they have unemployment, they have inflation, sluggish corporate and private spending. You know, so they have when they have pro economic problems, they have grown-up economic problems. Of course, the argument persists about which is the biggest economy in the in, on the continent. Is it Nigeria? Is it uh, uh, South Africa, you know, that always is the argument. Many people argue that it's not South Africa who should be a member of BRICS, it's Nigeria. Well, given the trouble that mm. BRICS has given us of late, perhaps we should let the Nigerians take that seat. But the fact is, uh, Angola now, in, in April of this year, was the largest producer of oil on the continent. That had happened back in 2022. I know mm. that. And then also previously, again, when whenever there's a problem, uh, in, in Nigeria, certainly with uh, the area up in the northeast, you know, Boko Haram and that sort of area, when they cannot produce or export the oil they want, up comes uh, Angola, fills their place, and it's just done it again. All right. Well, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to just pass right through um, and, and ignore what's gone on with South Africa and the U.S. ambassador and Russia, because this is obviously a big foreign affairs spectacle. And as I said to you, Sudan has been in the headlines quite a lot. We've suddenly decided to usurp that position from them for no good reason. What do you surmise from what the U.S. ambassadors said about how we're giving arms or selling arms to Russia, how Russia has responded by saying, no, no, this is not true at all. And how the South African government, through Naledi Pandora, uh, Minister of International Relations, has says, said, no, no, it's a perfectly legitimate deal that we've done. There's nothing to hide here. It's, no, it's not that we're siding with Russia where we clearly are. I mean, what do you make of all of this, JJ? Is this just more keystone cops, people falling over their own feet, stupid uh, incompetence and, you know, never, ever ascribed to 
malice, what can be explained by incompetence when it comes to our government. What do you think is really going on here? Well, you know, for a start, for them um, initially to have said they didn't know what was loaded onto the Lady R, <laughs> at a naval port where where they have cameras and binoculars and people knowing exactly what's happening in the naval port, to say we didn't know what they were loading onto the ship, absolutely disingenuous. And this latest thing where the ambassador said, I bet my life that they were supplying arms, when he said this to journalists, when he, there was a day marsh. I don't, I hate when people use day marsh as a verb. They day marsh the thing. They summoned him to for a day marsh. And, uh, he then said, uh, this is the information I got. I'm very sorry that it's created the storm. He didn't apologize for saying it, but the uh, government release, this uh, Durko release said that the ambassador had apologized unreservedly. Now, absolute nonsense. He never did. And so that's further infuriated the Americans. And, you know, when we look at our friends in terms of trade and, you know, in diplomacy, you don't have friends, you have interests. And when we look at our interests, those, our interests with the United States and with the European Union far surpass anything that, uh, yep. can, that Russia can provide. At the moment, the Americans are thinking about or considering reviewing the uh, um, African Growth and Opportunity Act, which is a GOA, which gives access, uh, tax-free access to uh, the American markets for African products. Because South Africa, many countries provide, like Lesotho provides some textiles, as does uh, mm -hmm. uh, other countries to the north. South Africa uses a GOA assiduously. They send more products um, and, and uh, greater numbers and greater value products to the United States and draw enormous benefit from this. So for some time, long before we got into trouble with them, uh, people were right. saying, no, 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 we should look at this again because South Africa is benefiting too much. And Willilian Schlapo, the person I'm working the, on the book on, uh, he, as ambassador there, had had to argue all the time for keeping a go, saying it's very important and there's reciprocity, uh, you know, you, your goods come into South Africa at, at a favorable rate because of it. So if, if as a result of something like this, we, we upset the United States enough and they say, okay, you get no more AGOA rights because they give those rights only to the countries that they approve of on political and human rights level. But if they disapproved of us on, on, on that level because we're supplying arms to Russia, we would pay enormously and we're already paying in terms of the dollar well, uh um climbing up be the, the red you know it wouldn't be the first time that we cut off our nose despite our own faces so i wouldn't put it past our government i see colonel chris wyatt here in the comments saying angola's oil production is down precipitously from where it was a decade ago in 2014 when it was nearly 1.8 million uh dollars per barrel i think and down oh, barrels sorry, per day down. bpd Sorry, barrels per day and down from almost 2.5 years before that. So their, their, their capacity is actually slowing, not improving. I mean, that obviously just means Nigeria is slowing much faster. Much faster. <laughs> if that makes any or, sense. Or even faster, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I mean, interesting comments. Why is it, this is a question, that when the Saudis have oil, they make sure nobody is poor, but when an African country has oil, everyone remains poor? 
Yeah, we could ask that question, right? I mean, I why is it know that oil, if oil? The Saudis uh, make sure everybody uh, benefits. It's a smaller country, and when when you when you say a Saudi name, that four, you know, Abu Abu Bakr, Asedi, mm. Hussein, Muhammad, they will say. No, that's not enough names. I don't know who that is. Put another name or two in there to know exactly who we're talking about. And that, because their royal family is so large. Uh, so, yes, the royal family does very well out of it. But the people in, in Sudan who are battling, just like they are anywhere in the world, but not as many as in Africa, obviously. And certainly black gold into oil is to Saudi Arabia, but in Africa it's often called the black curse. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just opening doors for all kinds of skullduggery and gangsters and warlords, but that's the case almost anywhere in the world at any time in history. And JJ, you're the guy who's keeping us on top of these stories. Thank you very much for your time today. It's good to see you, JJ Cornish, brought to you by the Johannesburg Business School, looking at what happens around the African continent. We'll catch up with you in two weeks. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. JJ Cornish.